study this morning. Um, and it's a little bit hard to know where to begin. Um, but let's start with, with what we're doing for the next two weeks. Uh, we're starting a new series uh, this week called Tradition. And you'll notice the subtitle that's important, What's Essential, Principle, and Optional in the Faith of Our Fathers. Here's, here's a challenge that we naturally have uh, as Christians. When we read the Bible, we recognize its authority. And so Paul says very clearly in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is beneficial and inspired by God, that it's good for reproof, instruction, correction in righteousness, and for the equipping of the saints for every good work. Okay, He says that of all scripture. He says it very broadly. And if you look at how the Bible talks about itself, it constantly affirms that it's not merely written by men, but men, as they were, as in Peter's words, carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so it's simultaneously the works of men and the word of God. Now the challenge is, on the other side, it's also written in cultures that are not like ours, in history that's far removed from us, in languages that we don't happen to speak. And so it's uh, there's two errors that can be made, and one is to forget that distance and just assume that we need to just woodenly, literalistically live in the same way as the text presents, and the other is to render any aspect of the scriptures as irrelevant uh, or, or outdated or because it's the, merely the words of men, uh, not actually binding. And so we're always having to walk this road, but any of you who have spent any time reading the Bible as an authoritative book, seeking to do what it says, knows the struggle that we're talking about here, okay? And 1 Corinthians 11 provides a really good illustration of this uh, because we watch as Paul talks about two very different things, head coverings and communion, this, uh, this uh, ordinance that Jesus gave us, um, and handles them both as traditions, but handles them both in very different ways. Now, this week, we are dealing with the first half of 1 Corinthians 11, which deals with the concept of head coverings, and it is a difficult passage for a boatload of reasons. Um, I am feeling the pressure today, not, not just because it's a weird passage, not just because it touches on gender issues, but merely because it deals with so many things in ways that are difficult for us to connect the dots on today. You'll see what I mean as we get into it. Um, but I want to just say up front that although by nature of this passage, we're going to talk about gender a little bit this morning. By nature of this passage, uh, we're going to have to be stuck in that same tension of somehow this passage is re relevant for us today, that what I really want to focus on is the broader issue that will shed light on those concepts, but really what we see is Paul helping us to connect the dots from A to B. And so that's where I want to focus this morning. Um, we're going to want to read the passage through in its entirety before we get started. So you're going to want to open up to 1 Corinthians 11 in your Bible. Or if you'd like to use a Bible uh, in the back of a pew, you'll find one um, that you can open up. 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament, and the index in the front of the Bible will help you find it.
We're going to be looking at verses 2 through 16 this morning. Let's read through them together. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head was shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but the woman for the man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone's inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask for clarity. I ask uh, that you would help us to see the, um, the bare minimum foundations that need to be built on in this passage. I ask that you would help us to see um, those things are, that are cultural and temporal and those things that are principal and permanent, those things that are rooted in who you are and how you made the world and what you have done in Jesus Christ and those things that are applications of those that are specific to this church at this time in this way. And I ask God uh, for graciousness as we, as we look at this issue, um, that just, just vocabulary alone can make contentious. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, if you've never read this passage, now you know why I gave the preface. Um, because it is, it is both, um, as it stands, a little bit nerve-wracking, right? You feel, you feel that bone that none of us knew existed until the 2000s where hot topic issues are talked about and you feel it vibrating somewhere right here near your heart. Um, And then at the same time, there are things in here that mean absolutely nothing to you on first read. Probably the most profound example is when he gives the central statement that he's trying to prove here uh, in verse um, 10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And all of us go, great, thanks, Paul. it's an incredibly difficult passage, and one of the reasons why that is is because we don't know why Paul is talking about this. That's what makes this very difficult. In fact, it's made even harder by, by two important facts. One is that the context of the church in Corinth has three relatively large overlapping realities, overlapping ways of viewing the world, overlapping customs and cultures. Okay? So there is the Jewish culture. We know that the Jewish background of Christianity uh, uh, led to many Jews becoming Christians, and so they brought a Jewish understanding of those things. There's also the Roman culture, okay? Corinth was a Roman colony. 
it had direct ties to the Roman Empire, not just because it was in it, but because it was representative of its values. And then prior to Corinth being part of the Roman Empire, it was tremendously and utterly and completely Greek. Okay, And so knowing then how those three pieces meld together, in other words, if you've got three three puddles of paint and you mix them together, how the color comes out is incredibly hard. That aside, uh, even when we look at... um, even when we look at those things, it's hard to know what data is relevant and what's not, okay? And so is Paul thinking about pagan temple practices that may have been going on in Corinth? Is he thinking about broader principles in the whole culture? Is he drawing this entirely from, uh, from the worship of the synagogue in a Jewish setting? It's very difficult to tell, okay? Another thing that makes this passage really hard is that it's full of... Um, of metaphor. Paul's all about the play on words. He loves that. And here it gets very difficult because when he uses the word head, he doesn't always use it in the same way. And so he clearly talks about your physical head. That's why he talks about a head covering. That's why he talks about hair. But he also talks about a head relationally between two people. And so when he says the head of Christ is God, that's obviously not an anatomical statement right? It's, it's not literal. It means something else. It's metaphorical. And even there, he uses it uh, not only uh, in that way, but he uses them back to back in a way that sometimes it's hard to tell the two. Those are pretty obvious. But when he says uh, anyone who wears a head covering dishonors his head, does that mean he dishonors this head or the relational head? And he just uses the word. And so it's a very difficult passage. And because it deals with gender, it's also a very uh, uh, a very hot topic passage. Okay, the amount of books that have been written on this passage alone um, are piles, piles on piles. Okay, um, and with that, the the history of the argument in these commentaries with people who have made good cases and then those cases have been kind of the standard that the other side is trying to refute. Uh, it's long, and so. Not only does it matter if you pick up a commentary, uh, how well they do of unpacking the rest of it, but where they are in the timeline. Because if you read a commentary in the 80s and you read one in the 90s, it's at a different pace, a different place in the argument. Um, So let me just say one last thing. I think by nature of the big issue of what we're going to talk about, that the word of God has to mean something. And that, as we'll see, Paul roots his argument here, not in the temporal, not in the local, but in really big theological ideas. It must have some application for us. It must, okay? Now, if you don't believe that the scriptures are the word of God, then this isn't really a problem for you. You can just label Paul a misogynist and write it off. You can just um, say, well, this was completely local and it was only for the church in Corinth. After all, it's a letter written from a guy to a church and write it off. But if you, if you listen to how the Bible views itself, that option is not going to be satisfying. And I will warn you that as soon as you've done that, there's nothing to stop you from keep doing it. The metric then for truth becomes you. It becomes internal. And so you're going to be subject, and I know nobody likes to take this label, but subject to prejudice, because you're not going to be able to point to a foundation. And so for those of us who have a high view of Scripture, though, who seek to honor and obey it, to believe the words of Paul when he says, all Scripture is beneficial for all people, 
um, then we've got, we've got some work to do. So, like I said, the, the goal, though, is not for me to give you a complete and concise understanding of the Christian view of gender this morning. We will naturally touch on those things. My goal is not to convince you uh, if you stand in a different position. Um, I don't have time for that this morning. Um, and in, in these places, I'm still coming to my own conclusions, but there are bare minimum requirements that I think are inescapable in the text. And so those will naturally be presented this morning. Um, but last thing I want to say is, on this text alone, this is not something that divides our church. Okay? Gender matters. It does. And we'll, we'll deal with this even in a couple of weeks when we get to 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, and these things are going to come up. But this passage alone, it's just too hard. It's too difficult. There's too many opinions from people that I respect. Uh, and frankly, the issue, whatever the... Whatever the principles are, whatever the theology is, the issue that it applies to is so narrow, this is not where the line is drawn. This is not the text that says Christian or non-Christian. This is not the text that says Orthodox Church or inorthodox Church, and it's definitely not the line that says a part of our church or not a part of our church, okay? So, let's see what we can do with it. Go back to verse 2. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. You would think that this verse would be without controversy because it seems so upfront. He just says, I commend you because you keep the traditions as they were passed on. But it's difficult because Paul commending the Corinthians is a weird thing. Okay? This is a letter of correction. This is a letter where he's trying to adjust some serious mistakes, and he says, I commend you for the traditions, and then he rebukes them for not doing what he told them to, right? And so the question becomes, is this tongue-in-cheek? Is this, uh, you know, sarcastic in the way that he's saying this? What's really going on here? On top of that, even the word tradition can be a slippery word in Christianity, okay? The word that's used here for tradition is used both of negative man-made traditions that we should avoid. So, for example, Jesus rebukes the religious leaders of their day because they obey the traditions of men and ignore the commandments of God. In other words, they take the baseline of what Scripture is and then they build an entire tradition on top of it and that becomes the baseline for, for their behavior. But there's also clearly this positive reality that Paul is not making this up as he goes along. In fact, later in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, he's going to say, so I remind you of what I gave you that I received. And every scholar who's familiar with the literature of the ancient world recognizes that the language he uses there is saying, what I'm about to do, like when we do the catechism, is to pass down the tradition. It's maintained, it's contained, it's written out and clear what it is, okay? And so there is both sides of this, that there is a recognition that in the words of Paul, there is a deposit of truth to be passed on, that Christianity can't inherently just evolve into whatever it is, that most of faithfulness in Christianity is maintaining the truth and not making it up, okay? But on the other hand, there's also this recognition that we very rarely stop there that we easily build all sorts of other things, and instead of this being the only metric for Christian practice, we have these other metrics, and we treat them as if they're those thresholds, those lines of orthodoxy. So it's difficult to tell. Now, I would argue, um, because of what it says in verse 17, which we'll read in just a second, 
that whatever he wants to say about head coverings, he means what he says in verse 2. He commends them for keeping the traditions. The reason I say that is look at the contrast in verse 17 when he gets to the Lord's Supper. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Do you see the contrast there? And so in some way, he wants to commend them and then address a place where they're falling short. And as strange as it reads, because he clearly wants to clarify some things, this is a commendation. But the thing I want for us to recognize this morning is therefore that there is a positive reality in maintaining traditions, right? His commendation here is because they are sticking to the book, okay? Now, what is really going on in Corinth? Why is this issue even being addressed? There's a few things in the letter that give us relatively good clues, and here's the first one. There's a pattern in all of the criticisms that Paul makes of the Corinthian church. Almost every time, they involve two things. One, which is a self-exaltation. And so they take particular, uh, they, they take themselves class-wise and they exalt. We're the ones who know. We're the spiritual ones. They take particular gifts that are showy and they say, the ones who have this, these are the upper crust. These are the, you know, these are the tongue speakers, the ones who really matter. Um, and then the second thing that we see is that a lot of this is built into what commentators call an over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is beliefs about the end times. And so the idea here is that they're, they're living like God's entire plan is consummated. They're living like we've already experienced the fullness of salvation. It's not just merely heaven invading earth, but heaven's all that's left. So they're forsaking some of what it means to be earthly and living with where things are going right now. Um, the way that that may have entered into head coverings is that the Bible makes clear that marriage in particular is a temporal thing. And so Jesus, and this is cryptic if you've never heard it before, Jesus says uh, that in the age to come, men and women will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Okay, And so marriage is part of the human experience as it is now. And with that, in the, Cor in the church in Corinth, as well as in, um, in Judaism, with the entire ancient world, that came aspects that enter into these concepts of both gender um, uh, symbolism, I guess I'll say, that, that there are things that are inherently thought of culturally as male and inherently thought of culturally as female, especially in dress, like head coverings, as well as gender roles. Uh, and I know that that word can be really loaded, but at its base, it just means that you can be a husband or a wife, but you can't opt in. It doesn't define the roles at all. It just recognizes that there's a difference, okay, whatever it is. Um, so most likely, most commentators believe what's happening here is at least on Sundays when they gather for worship, there are women and possibly men who are forsaking those realities because they're temporary. And so they're going, well, on Sundays, we're living in everything Jesus has done, and so gender lo no longer matters. So these roles no longer issue. In fact, Paul says very clearly in the book of Galatians that in Jesus, there is no longer male or female, Jew or Gentile. And so it may be here that they hear that, and the way they interpret that is to boldly enjoy their freedom, which brings us to the final aspect that we see as a pattern in the Corinthian letter, which is that they are all about them and the privileges and the benefits of their Christianity. And so it doesn't matter if I eat at a temple where food is offered to idols because it doesn't stumble me. 
It doesn't matter if I go and see a prostitute because it's not hurting anyone else. There was this selfishness built into it. And so it may be, whether in the women who are, uh, who are you know, taking off their head coverings, it's a bold action is my point. It's not like I left it at home, okay? They're making a statement. And the statement is about their freedom in Christ. Those elements are so consistent in the letter of Corinthians, it's probably part of what's going on here. But that's literally as far as we can go with confidence, okay, of what's going on here. But whatever is going on, I want you to recognize how Paul addresses this issue. And the first thing he does, the first thing is he says, I want you to know. Okay? He deals with something that he needs them to know, and it is not merely an observation. It is not merely an opinion. Although he's going to point to the culture around him when he says, does not even nature teach you these things? That's not where he starts. He starts with theology. And so notice what he says here. Verse 3, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Okay? And so he gives us three statements here, and he says, this is the foundation, this is the basis for my ruling on this issue, for a better understanding of these things. And he makes these three statements, and each one of them is relational. Now, I want you to notice the order. Although he deals with the relationship between Christ and God, between husband and wife, and Christ and man, he doesn't put them in the order of God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman. That's important. His goal here is not to line everybody up in a hierarchy and say, if you're jumping the chain of command, there's something wrong. If he, would, if he wanted to do that, he would have started at the top or started at the bottom and worked the whole way through. But instead, read it with me again in verse 3. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, some people believe that what he's doing is just because he's going to refer to creation, to Genesis later, what he's doing is just talking chrono uh, chronology. And so um, if the word head here means source, then woman or uh, uh, mankind came from the creation of God through Jesus Christ, John chapter 1. Woman came from the side of man. And then eventually, God sent Christ. And so Christ came from God. In other words, what this is talking about is when God became a man in Jesus Christ. Uh, that may or may not be a good observation, but it doesn't bring anything to the table. It doesn't help us here. What's more important in this is to recognize the fact that he's focusing on these three roles individually, okay? Trying to make a comparison between them. So he's not creating a big picture hierarchy of A, B, and C. It's A and B and B and C and B, wait, which one did I miss? Uh, anyways, they're, they're separate, okay? Whatever he wants us to know is in the relationship in the pairs, in the couplets. And that brings us to the word head. But before I do that, I want to just be clear, just in case you're reading a different Bible, when it says the head of a wife is her husband, your, your text may say the head of a woman is man. And the reason is because in the Greek, as if it couldn't be any harder in this passage, is the same. When we say woman and when we say wife, it's the same Greek word written in the same way. When we say man and when we say husband, it's the same word. And so sometimes it's very difficult to discern which one's being implied, but most of the time, when we find them paired, most of the time in the ancient world, it's husband and wife. Not only that, but the reality, this gender relationship, the Bible never makes universal. 
I know that sometimes the Bible is uh, accused of being intensely patriarchal and perpetuating misogyny and these types of things, but you will not find in the, uh, in the Bible an inherent command that women obey all men. You won't. It's not there. It speaks specifically of relationships, of husband and wife. Okay? Whatever, whatever the requirement is, it's at that level. Okay? Now, before we move any further and talk about those pairs, I want to nail down one other thing, just because I know some of you are still hesitant, and I want to assuage that right now. I want you to notice what the women are doing. They're prophesying and praying. Okay? Here's another thing that you have to recognize. The Bible says that the entire body of Christ has been given spiritual gifts. Prophecy is one of them. The Bible says that God has given ministry to the church. If you were with us just a few weeks ago, we talked about that. That even pastors' jobs is merely to equip you guys, the saints, so that you can do the ministry. And when it comes to those things, we see here that women are prophesying. And when you come to the list of spiritual gifts that God has given to equip the church, you will not find engendered lists. And so there are not male gifts and female gifts. Okay? Here, clearly, Paul, as much as he may be accused to the otherwise, wants women fully active in the life of the church. Fully active. Using their gifts to the fullest extent. He makes no line in the sand here, and if you guys have already read 1 Corinthians, you go, yeah, but what about 14? What about chapter 14? He cannot contradict himself in three chapters. So he can't say over there, women are never allowed to do anything in church, and over here say, when women prophesy, make sure it goes this way. Whatever it means, it can't, it can't mean that, okay? But nonetheless here, Paul sees the issue not being if women and men are using their gifts, how? Okay, that's important. Now, this idea of head. Clearly there's a relationship here, even though body isn't referenced, between the head and the body. You can't really remove that. Uh, when we speak of the physical head and you make it relationally, it's the head and not another head. It's the head and not a particular part of the body, like, um, like the spleen. It's the head and the body. The relationship here is between those two things. Uh, and clearly also here, the language doesn't read both ways. It's not the man is the head of the woman and the woman is the head of the man. It's not, not the man of Christ is, or the head of Christ is God and God is the head of Christ. It's one directional. But that still doesn't answer what it means. Now, if you go through the history of the church, the primary way to understand this is headship in terms of authority. Like you have a headmaster at a school, Right? That changes about the 1950s, and a new posture is, is presented, a new possibility which has to do with this word source or origin, which we have an English understanding of because we can talk about the head of a river, right? And that doesn't mean the authority at the front of the river. It means where the river comes from. It means its source, okay? Now, like I said, the ink spilled in the literature is extensive on these things, but it is my understanding that although that held sway for a couple of decades, about the year 2000, anyone who's linguistically trained had to finally forsake that as being an option. Um, and the reason is because although we do find head as source used in that sense of metaphor, we never find it used that way in the singular. And so although it'd be weird for us to talk about the heads of a river, in Greek, that's what we find. Okay? And here it's in the singular. Okay? There is a new 
uh, a new possibility here that's kind of a between both, which is preeminence, okay? And so like, uh, yes, a leader is the head because they have authority, but there's also a sense where leader just means you're the one at the front, right? And so you can be the head, uh, the head of a line, and that doesn't mean you have authority over the line, it just means you're at the front of it, okay? That you're the preeminent one. I would argue that those options, A and C, are really the only ones that you can stand on here. And part of the reason is because source doesn't lead us to do anything with the text. It doesn't help us to understand what's going on here. It doesn't fit where Paul uses this same metaphor of husband and wife in Ephesians 5 uh, to explain the relationship when he says, therefore, wives should submit to their husbands and husbands should love their, wi uh, love their wives as Christ loved the church. And to say that the source of Christ is God is theologically scary. Okay. Because that says that Christ has a beginning, which is something that Jesus himself constantly proclaims to the contrary, that he is coexistent, co-eternal. What does it say in the very first verse of John's gospel? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, what is Paul trying to reiterate here? He's trying to reiterate, reiterate a relational responsibility between person and head. And notice also that as he does it, this relational responsibility is uh, across the board, which is probably why he brings Christ and God into it as well. Okay. So what does he say? Let's, let's look at it here. He says, I want you to know the head of every man is Christ. Okay. And so the recognition first is this relationship between Christ and man. And he says that your behavior reflects on your head. That's where he's going to go. When he talks about shame and glory for your head, that's clearly where he's going to go. And so there's, a, there's, a, there's an aspect of responsibility here, but most importantly, there's an aspect of relationship and there's an uh, aspect of order. Then he says the same thing about husband and wife. The head of a wife is her husband. And then finally, the head of Christ is God. And like I said, I would argue the reason he brings this last one in here uh, is because it shows something tremendously important that he's going to bring out explicitly later, that we're not talking about equality or inequality. Okay? He's not saying, I want you to understand that Christ is more important than man that husbands are more important than wives, and that God is more important than Jesus. Okay? In fact, you want to know what the early church fathers thought of this text? Whatever head coverings meant to them, they cared about that one sentence. Because the Arians sprung up and said, see, Jesus was made and he's inferior to God. And they read it in that way. But when we get later in the passage, although Paul is going to point to a gender order, he's also going to make it equal by saying, yes, it's true that woman came from man, but you were born of a woman, right? And so he's going to balance it out here and say that this is not an issue uh, of these things, and yet there's still nonetheless an order. But we really can't understand what he's saying here until we move forward, okay? I think the Corinthians would have heard that. They already know where he's going because they know what he's talking about. We don't. So we'll come back to it. Verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Let me clarify that, okay? Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors Jesus, his head, okay? He's not saying that it brings dishonor on your physical head. He's unpacking this relationship that he just made. 
In the same way, verse 5, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. Once again, to clarify, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her husband, her head. Okay? You have to catch that or you're going to be confused. Hold that there because we've got to keep going to understand the trajectory here. Verse, uh, we're going to skip 5 and 6. We'll come back to it. Verse 7, for man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Okay, now here, here's where it all comes together. This is what you have to see. And first, let me, know, let me point out what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that man is the only image of God. What did we learn last week? Genesis 1.27, male and female, in the image of God, he created them. But he doesn't say that man is the image of God and woman is not the image of God. He uses this pair, image and glory, because he wants to talk about glory. And so what he says is the woman, the wife, is the glory of her husband. Okay? So this has to do with the word glory and not which one perfectly and appropriately represents God. Like I said, if you go back to Genesis 1, it makes clear that this representation that God has birthed into humanity, that we were created in the image of God, is for both genders, male and female. In fact, when in Galatians, Paul says there's no longer male or female, he's clearly alluding, alluding to that verse. Because the normal way to say it in Paul's day would have been no longer men and women. But he uses the same structure in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that he would have been familiar with to draw attention to that's where it comes from. Okay? There's no longer male and female, both created in the image, but he wants to talk about glory. And so what he's saying here, once again, is that the re behavior of one reflects on their head. And so he says that the behavior of the man reflects on Christ and the behavior of the wife reflects on her husband. And he uses the concepts of glory and shame. Let's go a little bit further. Now, now he's justifying the difference that you've probably noticed, okay? Which is why don't, why don't wives merely reflect on Christ? Why do their husbands have to be in here at all? But notice what he says in verse 9. Or verse 8, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, the first thing I want you to notice about this, and this is, this is huge in terms of adapting this to our times and answering the question what it means for us today. Where does he go? He goes to Genesis 1, 2, 3. This is so consistent in the New Testament on issues of gender, sexuality, and marriage. Jesus, when he's talking about divorce in Matthew chapter 10, no, Matthew chapter 20-something in Mark chapter 10, uh, he, he points here. In fact, Jesus quotes both sides, Genesis 1, male and female created in the image of God, and Genesis 2. When Paul deals with these things, he goes here. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, he goes here, okay? When he deals with sexuality, uh, back in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, he, deals, he goes here and he says, uh, he says that the two shall become one flesh, right? His entire understanding of gender and sexuality comes from Adam and Eve and God's creation of them. Why does that matter? Because it is pre-cultural, okay? Because it's pre-cultural and it's before the fall. It's before sin, okay? He says, 
these are standardizing for what it means to be human, what it means to worship God, what it means to be male and female. He points to these texts, okay? Now, notice the observations he makes. First, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. If you read Genesis chapter 2, God's created all these things. He creates man. He sets him in the garden. And then he makes the first negative statement he's made about creation. It's not good for man to be alone. So first day, there's light, and it was good. Second day, there's water, and it was good. Third day, all the way down the line. It's all right. Uh, third day, all the way down the line, and he gets to the creation of man, and he says it's not good that man should be alone. And so he takes all of the animal kingdom and parades them before Adam, and he names them one by one, and now Adam knows, because he sees it, there's no one here for him. That a dog may be a man's best friend, but there's no, there's no nothing for him, you know. Mr. Dog and Mrs. Dog, Mr. Porcupine and Mrs. Porcupine, but there's no Mrs. Adam. Okay. God puts him to sleep and out of his own side creates a woman. And how does he respond when he sees her? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She will be named woman because she was taken out of man. Okay. So she's not created completely uniquely from him, but directly out of him. And this is what he points to. And he says, the reason why this matters is because woman was taken out of the man. And I want to be clear here that this is not just because man was created first. Because pigs were created before man, and we're not subject to them, and whatever this means, right? Okay, but it has to do with the fact that this couplet, this pair of male and female, were created in this way. But not just from man, but notice what he says next. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And I want to be very clear here. That is not a blank check. Woman was created to satisfy man. Woman was created to help man meet his goals. Woman, it's very clear in the context of Genesis chapter 2 what she's created to be. She's created to be a helper, right? And I know that word may come off awful because we know what it's like to call someone mother's little helper. But the word there is used multiple times of God himself. When the psalmist says God is my helper, okay, that's not some sort of diminutive and it's also clear that what she's supposed to help him do is, is the entire calling of humanity. With that being said, there's a couple of things that we have to nail down right here implied by that pair of Adam and his helper. The first is that Adam needs Eve. Needs. Needs. Okay? So this is not some sort of independence, and it does not lend itself to a view of women as less than human, a view of women as property, as merely for the use of. He needs a helper. Like I said, the word for helper, even when it's not used of God, always means somebody stronger than you. Okay? So it's not even, there's nothing diminutive about this at all. But the second thing is, there is an implied relationship here that you just can't get around. That Adam is not Eve's helper. That's what Paul is driving at. And I know just by nature of where we were born and and when we live, That's a little bit difficult to wrap your head around, but I want you to recognize here that Paul doesn't see it as something inherently cultural. And he's not just blinded by his cultural viewpoint. He goes to the beginning, he goes to origins, he goes for the purposes in creation, and he says these things matter. Even those who are egalitarians, which is a word that means that men and women can serve in the church in equal ways and that that gender is merely biological, they recognize here something that's suddenly become really important in our times is this passage clearly points to a distinction in genders. 
and that that distinction matters. So even if all this is is just making sure that in church women look like women and men look like men, you can't dig any deeper and remove any further than that. And he roots it here in, in the fact that there is male and female, that it was created and intended to be. Now, if your exception alarm is going off this morning, I totally understand that, but don't forget that by nature of logic, exceptions prove the rules. So are there people who are, who are born with, um, with confused genders biologically? Yes, although chromosomally, not so much. And it's important to keep that in mind, that gender is not reduced down to a particular sexual organ, but a very consistent pattern of chromosomes, of X's and Y's, and how they're distributed, okay? Um, but more importantly, more importantly, recognizing that we live in a world where things are totally twisted and everything has gone sideways doesn't remove intentions. And God intended a world for male and female and to do what mankind is to do, both are needed. Okay? We cannot be the image of God as merely men, even though men fulfill that reality of the image of God. We cannot be the image of God as merely women, even though women bear that mark. There's something that God is trying to say in Genesis, in the creation of man and woman, that is unique. And the only unique thing that we're given in man and woman is the fact, is, is built into this story, right? What's different about this? All the bears were just created. But man was created out of the ground, breathed life into, and then woman out of his side. When you read Ephesians chapter 5, Paul once again goes to the book of Genesis as he's talking about the relationship between a husband and wife, and he lets us in in an incomprehensible secret. He says, when I'm talking about husband and wife, I'm talking about husband and wife, but not really. I'm talking about Christ and the church. He says, there's something bigger if you guys have ever read C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, which I know is like three of you, um, I'd like to see that number grow. His last book, his last book postulates this idea of gender being more than we think of it in, in just the most fascinating way. But what he reduces it down to is just the fact that God is clearly trying to say something in the creation of man and woman that matters. And to be honest, I don't know if I actually understand what it is. But Paul's point here clearly is that that matters and that it's purposeful. And that to hide it or to remove it is to hide who God is. It's to limit what God is. And here's a personal thing. I'm stepping out of teaching the Bible and just this is on my own journey. Here's, here's a concern I have about where we've gotten in thinking about gender. I am thoroughly convinced that a major part of this problem is not merely the abusive uh, uh, role that men can treat women in, it, not merely the fact that women have all, the, has all these limits. I'll tell you what, the Bible, I would say, completely supports equal wages for equal work, okay? just as an illustration. But, but we have downplayed the womanly aspects of what a woman is. When we look at parenthood, when we look at motherhood, when we look at these things, we live in a culture that doesn't value those things. And so things are skewed in such a way that for a woman to find importance, she has to do the same things a man can do. That may be, I'll be honest, that may be a devaluation of women and saying they're not capable of doing those things. You will not find an argument in the Bible that says that women are less in their ability. It doesn't exist. But I would say that there's a devaluation of womanly things. And that part of what it means to get this right is to see motherhood, for example, as glorious. 
to see the role of helper as something even God does, to get over the gag reflex we have to the word submission and recognize that 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 was Jesus' entire life. And that's a good thing. And I could talk about a lot of other layers, but I just want to throw those ones out there just because just I know that this is hard to struggle through. And I know that I'm merely just some you know, middle-class white guy, and that changes the way I view these things, and it definitely changes the way you hear them. But Paul here doesn't say the obvious misogynistic thing. He doesn't mention inferiority of women. He goes back to the beginning and he points to the story and he says the story matters and it still matters today. Now, what is he saying then? When we go back and look over the passage, it has to do with glory and shame. And he says, if a woman prays and prophesies with her head uncovered, she might as well shave her head. That's a paraphrase, but that's what he's saying. Now remember what shaving your head would be like in that culture. In fact, we know of many examples in literature from Greek, Roman, and Jewish times that sometimes if you had, for example, a prostitute who was caught, you'd shave her head. If you had a prisoner and you wanted to shame them publicly, you'd shave their head, men and women. Even the Nazarite vow, which involved a shaving of head, is an intentional humiliation, even though it's self-chosen. Okay? So his point here in talking about hair is, is that what they're doing is just as shameful, so they might as well go the whole way. But what in the world is he talking about? He says, relationally, if she doesn't wear the head covering, it reflects on her husband. But more importantly than that, he says that if, even if the man were to cover his head, it reflects on Jesus. What is going on? It's all about this idea of glory. Here's the best way I can understand it, and this is, this is somewhat of a new thought for me. I haven't even gotten it to know what it would look like today, but it seems the clearest understanding here. When a woman prays without her head covering, everybody sees the glory of her husband. Okay? Now, I know how that sounds, but hold it for a second. What we're supposed to see in worship is Jesus. And so what he's recognizing here is that there's, a, that there's a breakdown in the imagery, in the picture, in the reality of what a worship service is supposed to be. And in his culture, those realities are shown by a head covering. And it's pretty clear in the ancient world, whatever sources you come from, that the head covering was a way of showing not merely modesty, like there's something overtly sexual about hair, but deference to husband in the same way that a wedding ring does, okay? It shows that I'm not available. And you might say, that's totally crazy, but in these times, how would you tell a prostitute on the streets? No head covering. Hair down, you know, um, you know, these are the things that it's talking about. And even if it's just merely talking about distraction in service, that's clearly where Paul's going to go later as he talks about the use of spiritual gifts in the church. Now, like I said, I don't know how to wrap my head around all of those things, but it, I, to me, it's the best understanding of the text, that effectively what he's saying here is that, um, that this, uh, this change in their behavior breaks down the relationships between husband and wife, and it also distracts from what's going on. Now, verse 10 that's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Two things there. The first one is that word authority. Now, once again, I don't think you can get around the fact that he uses the word authority here. 
It's intentional. If that doesn't imply something to what he means by head, then I don't know why he chooses to use this word here. Even though what he's talking about here is not the authority of someone else on her. And let me say that just in case your text says something else. This word is never used in the passive. So she's not wearing a head covering as a symbol of someone else's authority over her. Impossible linguistically. Okay? It's not evidence that she belongs to someone, period. The word here literally means that she has authority over her head. Okay? Now, in the ESV, it says a symbol of her authority. Uh, that word symbol is, is added by the translators because they're struggling just like we are to understand what's going on here. But if you take it in its most literal and practical sense, it just means that she should have authority over her head. In other words, she should have control over her own head. In the context of this thing, and this is another thing that's really important. Here's what you won't find in the Bible in terms of gender roles. You won't, tell, you won't hear it telling men to put women in their place. It doesn't tell men to rule over women or even husbands to rule over wives. It tells the wives to submit. And that difference may not mean very much in the world we live in today, but it's a very important one. And here it's the same thing. He does not tell, his, tell the husbands of the church, hey, get your wives in order. It's not here at all. It's not in his mind. He says, but because of this order, because there's something here that's bigger and deeper, because it actually matters, women should be in control. And there's one other reason why I think he puts it in this phrase. It's pretty clear that part of what was going on in the church of Corinth, they were blaming on God and basically saying, I can't help it. It's just a spiritual ecstasy that overcomes me. And so I stand up in the middle of the congregation and I speak in tongues and I just can't stop. We'll get there. Okay. And so it may be that the women were saying the same thing, that, that this is part of their prophecy or whatever. And he's just saying, no, you can have control. He'll say later, the spirit of prophecy is subject to the prophets. Now, what does he mean when he says, because of the angels? I don't know. Commentators don't know. There are plenty of theories, but if anyone tells you they know what this means, especially if they couch it in words, I prayed about it and God told me. We just don't know, but I want to point out a couple of things. First off, the Corinthians know, and Paul knows. Right? He's not just saying something. This is not some sort of theological Tourette's where he just accidentally spills ink on the page that doesn't have meaning right? And that's important to keep in mind. This is something that would have meant something to the Corinthian church. Here, I think, is the best explanation, okay? Paul makes clear over and over again in the New Testament that angels are very interested in God's plan of salvation, that they're longing to look into these things, as the author of Hebrews puts it. If you look in um, the book of Ephesians, God says one of the reasons why he saved mankind in this way is to demonstrate to the powers and principalities and the angels who he is. Okay? And so it seems to me the recognition here is that we're being watched, that there are angels paying attention. And I'll tell you what, angels care about these things. They know a little bit about covering. What happens every time we see an angel, angel in the uh, presence of God? We find them covering themselves, right? Two wings to cover their feet, two wings to cover their faces, right? Th this idea is somehow inherently obvious to the angelic realm. And more important than that, this attitude of deference this attitude of submission and even this attitude of order is something that angels would care about. But whatever he means here, this isn't his main argument. It's just a clincher. And once again, it probably mat uh, matters to the Corinthian church because of what Jesus said. That in heaven, 
men and women will no longer marry or be given in marry, just as the angels. And so maybe their justification was, because Jesus said we're going to be like the angels, we're going to behave like the angels, and Paul just as, as a jab says, even the angels are bothered <laughs> by your behavior. Verse 11. Listen to that first word. Nevertheless. Why does Paul say that? Why does this word exist here? Because he wants to make sure they get it right. He wants to make sure the pendulum doesn't swing too far. He wants to make sure even in his adjustment, they don't infer a bunch of things that he's not saying, right? That's what nevertheless means. And so he makes this case that man was formed first, that woman was formed out of the man, that woman was formed for the man, that these things matter. And then he says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born from woman, and all things are from God. I think he makes two statements here. The first is, in the Lord, man is not independent of woman and woman of man. That's what Galatians makes clear. There is neither male nor female. The point is this, that there's a reciprocity in our need. It's not just that men need women, but women need men. But here, what he's recognizing then is that we can't take any sort of autonomy or independence and put ourselves on a shelf as being the ones who aren't helpless, right? There's no helpless maiden concept here. And he's making that clear, that even though there is order, there is still equality, there is still reciprocity, there is still need on both sides. The second thing he does here is he gives us uh, a reason in verse 12, for as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of the woman. The reason why I say this is two things, because if it's one thing, it's super confusing. Because he says this reality of reciprocity is true in the Lord, and then he points to something that people who aren't Christians experience all the time, human birth. Okay? More likely what he's doing is making a point and then saying, even in life, you can see that this is the case. No man can say, I don't need women, because they wouldn't exist without them. Period. And that's his point. Okay? Now, Theologically, Paul points to the relationship all the way back at the beginning between Christ and God. And I think this is a perfect illustration of what we're talking about here. Because there is a father and son relationship in the Godhood, but that is not distinguishing of their equality. It does not make one lesser or greater. It doesn't make, uh, you know, it, it doesn't reduce down to merely a hierarchy, even that's the way to explain it. And you may say, well, yeah, but Jesus was only incarnated as the son. And so this is the economic tri trinity. This is the incarnation we're talking about. It's not permanent. But what you're saying of women is permanent. No, I'm not. Because as I told you, Jesus already proclaimed that whatever gender means, whatever these marriage roles exist, they will be so different in heaven. It's completely different. Okay. But Paul is saying here on earth, it still matters. It's at this point, it's at this point that he moves to culture. Notice verse 13. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray, for God, pray to God with her head uncovered? Do you see the jump here? He puts it in their laps and he says, ask the question of yourselves. Now this is super weird to us because we read it and we just go, no, no, it's not improper. And that's important. We'll come back to that. But he expects that there's something around them in the world they live in that points to this. And notice as he continues on, verse 14. Does not nature itself teach you that a man wears long hair? It is a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. 
I'll be honest, the first time I read this and I read that it was natural for men to have short hair and women to have long hair, the first thing I thought of was the, the manly, masculine lion. And I went, that, isn't that nature? Right? But that's not what he means here. The word here he uses for nature in the sense that the Greeks and the Romans meant it is a lot broader than just the biological kingdom, these types of things. It means custom, okay? And so what he's saying is, just look around you. Look in your culture. And he says, doesn't your own cultural sentiment, and then he uses the illustration here of hair. That's the other thing. He's not talking about head coverings here, but hair. And if you look at every single statue, painting, any artifact we have of this culture, we find men with short hair, women with long hair, and it's consistent. But what is he doing here? Is he rooting his argument in culture? No, he's illustrating from culture that their beliefs don't even line up with what they see everywhere else. Okay? Notice what he says here. Um, he says, verse 15, But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for hair is given to her for a covering. Okay, here's the thing. Uh, let's look at the last verse just because it's important. Verse 16. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, I would love to tell you that that clearly meant that this doesn't matter. That he just said, if anyone wants to fight about this, this isn't something that's important anyways. That we have no such practice. Almost all commentators believe, though, that what he's saying here is we have no such practice like the one you're doing in Corinth. In other words, this, this new novel way of interpreting these things, it's only you, Corinthians. The reason I say that is because when he finishes the chapter, he's going to say, is it only to you that the word of God has come? Do you get to define what Christianity looks like? Can you just forsake the traditions and create your new ones? It's pretty clear that's what he means uh, and not the other way around. Uh, but here's the big picture, and this is where I want to finish. We see two things going on in this text. We see a starting place that is inherently theological, that it is beyond culture, that is not limited by Paul's time, but goes to prehistory, God's intention, creation as it was intended. And then we see it playing out in, an, in, in a very specific culture. When we read here, judge for yourselves, there's a recognition here that whatever he's talking about always has a cultural manifestation. In other words, gender is going to look different in different places. Gender roles are going to look different in different places. And so this is why I think this is a great, uh, a great passage to talk about how we move from A to B, okay? Because there's two things that you can remove from this that will turn it into total nonsense and will remove the Bible from having any value in your life. The first... The first is, um, is not to see the theological foundation here. It must mean something. And it may look different in our times, but it has to look like something. We can't just forsake this as being irrelevant because Paul's foundation for it is bigger than their times, bigger than our times. But second, the Bible is written in a culture and to a culture, and so most of the truth we encounter is enculturated. And so we don't simply just adopt this practice. Now, would there be other cultures where this would read very easily and they'd just nod their head and it would make a lot of sense? Absolutely. But it's principle and practice. The principle has to look like something. The practice is going to look different at different times. Okay? 
And I think we fall into in Christianity in general, especially in the commentaries, we fall into two errors in here. One is to say that it's, it doesn't really matter that it was a merely localized event, that it has no, that's just not the argument that Paul gives us. And the other is to say, therefore, the church needs to repent and get out the head coverings. Um, because because he, he roots it at the end in their culture, in their time. And like I said, Paul's relatively consistent in this. So let me sum it up for you. Two things. One, when you're reading an argument for a practice in Scripture, just something we're supposed to do, ask yourself, is this just merely a temporal thing? This is not as simple as it sometimes sounds because it's not just, well, did it, is it commanded? Then we should do it. Paul gives an imperative command to Timothy when he says, bring me my scrolls and my cloak, and none of you have ever done that, right? But the foundation here is not just, I have a need, you can meet my need. The foundation here is this is how God designed it, okay? Second, second, we have to watch out from this time that very easily throws away all sorts of things as being merely cultural, because the Bible believes in a creator with a plan and a purpose. And yes, there's totally cultural things. But even the most cultural things have significance in the theological realm. Take clothing, for example. The reality of clothing, the Bible roots in the fact that something went terribly wrong. And the fact that we can't walk around naked is not merely some sort of um, you know, sexual repression or these types of things. It's because it's a perfect illustration of the fact that we hide things from other people. And when you're hiding things from other people, very naturally you also want to hide your body from other people. There's a correlation in these things, okay? But what it looks like from culture to culture, sometimes it's going to be permanent. That's what we'll see next week. Communion should be observed. The elements matter, the, the bread and the blood, the bread and the juice, it matters. But in other places, it's enculturated and you really can see the difference in the scriptures. And then on the gender issue, all I wanted to provide you for today is just a starting place, not an ending place. Some of you need to reopen your thinking about these things because either you're determined what's right or you're determined what the Bible says, whether those overlap or not. And I hope you've shown this morning that even when we reject the Bible, we bring in a lot of baggage. Okay? But it has to mean something. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that part of this theological foundation, even though it's not alluded to here, is, is the fact that you are good and that you've designed things in our best interest. And like Brittany shared this morning, we don't always see that. We don't always understand it. And whether we have to go, I don't understand, but you are good, or we have to go, uh, I know I have to do this, but you are good, or we have to go, I know that I'd like to do this, I know that I'd like other people to do this, but it's not, it still is built on this foundation of your goodness. And so often, Lord, we, we are subject to a reading of the scriptures that assumes the worst, that comes in defensively, prepared to just run out the door if we hear anything we don't like. So I pray that you'd help us with that, 
that we would be good listeners and that we would recognize that the, the fallible one in this relationship is us as human beings. Not only us as readers of scripture, but our teachers as interpreters of scriptures. But we should never be afraid to go back and dig again and look again and listen again. I pray as well that you would help us to enculturate your gospel because that's what Jesus did. He became a man and spoke a particular language. He took on the customs and dress of a particular people. He took the great transcendent God and make it, made it clear to the people of his times. And you call us to do the same thing today. Help us to avoid both mistakes, Lord, um, of not caring and conveying the truths uh, and of trying to convey them in ways that are irrelevant or irresponsible or do not reflect the times. Let us be timeless in our truth and timely in our application. We ask this in your name. Amen. So we